tortoise. Hello and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolf. This is the podcast where we try to make sense of a story by starting with the numbers. I'm Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University and I'm interested in tracking public opinion on all sorts of issues. And I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster, where we also do polling and use that to inform our analysis of policy. I also co-wrote the Conservative Election Manifesto in 2019, so I know a bit about the link between what voters want and what politicians say. Now, Rachel, I think we should probably call this week the Crime and Punishment Week, um, because we're going to talk about prisons, crime, policing and punishment. That's right. So building off the stories some of you may have seen about the overcrowding in prisons and the fact that they may now be too full to take any more prisoners, we're going to look at what's been happening in prisons, what's been happening to crime and the police, and how that is linked to what voters think and therefore politicians are saying. And you're going to tell us a story later on, aren't you, Rachel? I'm going to give my favourite anecdote from Tony Blair's autobiography, which I recommend everyone read anyway. Well, we will all wait with anticipation. (laughs) But let's start with our our numbers. So the first number that we're going to talk about today is a prison number, 88,255, which earlier this month was the total prison population in England and Wales. And we should probably make a mild apology to our Scottish listeners that this is going to be mostly an England and Wales stats-focused episode. Now, this was an all-time high, although not by much, as we'll talk about in a bit. Um, And it means that two-thirds of prisons are officially overcrowded with very significant number of prisoners spending 16 hours plus a day in their cells. Okay, so Rachel, why have we hit this problem in England and Wales? So I'm going to start by talking about a little bit of history and then we'll talk about why it's got so bad recently. Ah. So the prison population uh, grew pretty significantly throughout the 20th century. Uh, it's also changed quite a bit in composition. One one fact that I like is that um, 100 years ago, you'd have had nearly 20% of prisoners were female, quite a lot of them there because of prostitution or being suffragettes. Now it's only 4%, but it was also a much smaller number. So one of the things we should bear in mind that what is a crime changes over time. Absolutely. And of course, there were other periods like uh, in the 1960s when abortion became legal, when homosexuality became legal. What we consider to be acceptable, particularly socially, has unquestionably changed. Sure. Nevertheless, it is still true back then and it is true now that most people who are in prison are in prison for violence or for sexual offences. And we'll come back to the change in that in a bit. But we've had this big rise in prison population. It rose particularly under Blair. Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Well, he was definitely tough on crime. We can debate how tough he was on the causes because um, this story of prison overpopulation is is in some ways a repeat of one from 2007, which you may remember, John. Um, The prisons became overcrowded. Uh, There were over 80,000 people in prisons and Blair was forced to have early release for a significant number of prisoners, much against his will. But to come back to now, so since uh, since 2010, since the end of the Labour government, the prison population hasn't risen that much until quite recently. But what has happened is it's risen a little bit, uh, number one. Number two, we haven't built many more prison places. The government promised to build about 20,000 more prison places. Very few of those have been built at the same time as the population 
has increased very dramatically in that time, about 10 million extra people in the country from the 1990s. So we were already pretty much full. So it didn't take a great deal to put us over the edge. And I think what you're saying is, even if the level of proportion of the population that's in prison wasn't changing, given the increase in the size of the population, pressure was inevitably at some point going to occur, unless penal policy changed quite dramatically. You would expect, although, as I think you are going to talk about a bit later, John, what, what I'm not discussing is whether crime has changed in that period, which it yeah, also sure. we'll has. Come crime that. has we'll come to, we'll that. Come to yeah, that. Sure. Yeah. But a couple of other things uh, have happened over the last decade which have contributed to this particular pressure. The first is, most recently, there are a lot of people sitting in prison who are waiting to have their trial in the first place, is what we call remand. Ah. There's been a big, big court backlog, particularly since COVID. And so lots of people are taking up jail places. It's increased by about 45% over over the last few years, it's now over 14,000 people in jail are waiting for a trial. And this is having a knock-on effect on the number of people in prisons. The other thing that's happened over the last uh, couple of decades, since 2008, 15 years, is sentences have become much longer. So we hear uh, Alex Chort, the Justice Secretary, saying that one of the problems is that we put too many people in prison on very short sentences. It's bad for them. It means they're not likely to be rehabilitated. There are better ways of dealing with them. And that may well be true, but they're not a big part of the prison population. In fact, the sentences we've been giving people over the last decade have been increasing very substantially. Um, so in 2008, for example, around a third of prisoners had about four-year sentences. Today, it's more like half. We have more than three times as many people sentenced 10 years or longer. Is it the case that the people who 10 years ago might have got six months, are they now getting a non-custodial sentence? Or is it the case that the people who 10 years ago might have got six months and now getting two years? What's going on here? It seems to be more the latter, that people who were getting... people's. Uh, uh, increases going up by a few months. So we decide that short-term prison sentences are bad for people, so we give them longer ones. Well, they aren't They aren't necessarily the sorts of people you'd be giving short-term sentences uh, to in the first place. So I think okay. it is worth stressing that there is definitely a small set, and it's particularly true for women, there is a small set of people in prison who are there for non-violent crimes where very conceivably you shouldn't be giving them these short sentences. Because like what shoplifting, happens is for example. Shoplifting, exactly, yep. would be a great example. They go in, they lose their kids, they lose their house. You know, it's much more like they reoffend. That's small. It's not much of the prison population that's in this category. Most people who are in prison are there for violent crimes, for sexual offences, which has gone up enormously. Yep. Far more people are being put into prison for sexual offences because we, we put much more... Um, scrutiny on rape and, and violence and sort of serious drug offences. So mostly what's happening is those people are in prison for even longer. Plus you have these people languishing because they're waiting for their trial in the first place. And we haven't built more prison places. So we have this kind of perfect combination of a COVID story, a government hates building things story. And we have slumwatt changed who goes into prison and for how long. That leads us on to the crimes themselves and our second set of numbers. Yes, and that's, first of all, four and a quarter million. That's the number of crimes as measured by the Crime Survey of England and Wales, going out and asking a random sample of people, the number of crimes that people reported having suffered over the last 12 months or so. That compares with nearly 20 million recorded by the same survey back in 1995. 
So on that source, at least, there has been a dramatic reduction in level of crime. Though I should say, one of the things that has also happened is that there has been a whole new category of crimes added to the survey in recent years, which is to do with fraud and computer misuse. And if you include that, then you kind of double that four and a quarter, more or less double that number of currently around four million crimes. But even so, according to this source, of course, crime is down quite considerably. But of course, it all depends on what, how you, what you define as a crime, and it all depends on how you measure it. Um, and you know the other way in which it can be measured is in terms of people reporting crimes to the police, and that hasn't necessarily gone down. Indeed, on the most recent measure, it's actually now at a uh, record high. So what's going on here? Well, there's certainly some things that are pretty clearly down. Um, violent crime actually is down. Homicide is down. So some of the crimes that people are most concerned about. So now whether or not it's because we're putting them for longer in prison, if they do commit the crimes, that perhaps is, an, is, is another story. Although... One thing I thought was interesting, John, which I hadn't realised before we were this episode, is the number of children in prison has dropped massively. And that does seem to be because they're committing fewer violent crimes. Usually if you're an adolescent in prison, it's because of a violent crime. Although, of course, what, one of the areas where certainly more recently crimes have been going up is to do with knife crime, which, yeah. of course, does often at least involve young younger adult people. males. Uh, so they may not be technically children, but they're certainly pretty much younger adults. The other thing that's down very considerably, theft and burglary, including vehicle crime. Um, uh, I guess in part, this is to do with uh, changes in technology. It's now got more difficult to steal a car, but it is also, of course, that now uh, perhaps uh, trying to um, scam people over the internet and computer fraud, etc., etc., which, as I said earlier, has just become a whole new set of crimes, has perhaps become an easier way for people to try and uh, get money off people. Um, I always remember this, John, that when I was a kid, it was the car radio that people used to smash into cars and steal the car radio as the sort of ubiquitous crime. And you took it with you when you, you took, left the car. Well, you took the radio out. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think now it's probably impossible to take the radio out because it's, you know, it's connected to so much other computer technology in your, your car. Your car probably wouldn't work if you took the radio out. But anyway. But obviously uh, at the same time, people didn't have their bank accounts cleaned out in quite the same way. No. No, because past. it was much more difficult um, uh, because, you know, that it wasn't that you couldn't access a bank account by getting hold of a few pin numbers or uh, whatever and uh, uh, get at it that way. Um, so as we said, so fraud's got up nice. Got, the other thing which has gone up again comes back to something we were talking about earlier um, is that certainly uh, on record, again, crimes reported to the police, uh, sexual offences has gone, has, has, has gone up. And that, again, probably is as much to do with now a greater, well, one, a greater willingness of people to report sexual offences, albeit still uh, many people having concern that still the level of report is well below the level of prevalence. Um, but that's, you know, as a society, we have become less tolerant of various forms of sexual offences. We take, the, for example, the legislation against upskirting, for example. Uh, domestic, uh, domestic abuse, again, much more of an issue of concern. So again, it reminded to us, therefore, that what is crime and the seriousness of crime is something that changes over time as society's uh, values and attitudes change. I just wanted to um, 
ask you to unpack a little bit this difference between the crime survey, which is when you ask people every single year, basically, did you experience one of these kinds of crimes? And this is showing this huge drop. And then police recorded crime, which is showing this record high. And that seems to be partly because we are recording lots of crimes that we didn't used to record, particularly on sexual offences. Well, that's part of the story. The other part of the story is that the police statistics include certain crimes, particularly crimes against businesses that are not recorded through the Crime Survey of England. And again, another area, and we've heard quite a lot of this in the news recently, where uh, a crime has, uh, incidents have gone up, is to do with shoplifting. Also, however, we're, we're all of us now aware of those signs that say, you know, if you do not abuse our staff, if you do, we will take action. And again, that's an area where we've become less tolerant as a society of uh, various forms of, of verbal abuse. Um, and again, that's now more likely to be re- reported to the police. So, but certainly uh, uh, crimes against business, again, which will also involve fraud, that is an area which has gone up. And certainly, therefore, you know, you can find on the internet, you know, companies that are responsible for business security, et cetera, et cetera, will be quite keen to try and tra- trap business by saying, look, you know, recorded crime from the police is up and a lot of this is against business, et cetera, et cetera. So as individuals, arguably, we are as now less vulnerable to crime than we were. But if you're running a business, that's not necessarily the way in which in which you see the world. Um, but but of course, and then also the, the other reason why these things will differ is if you think the police aren't going to do anything about it, then you may not bother to report it, which I guess gives us a reason to talk about the police, Rachel. Yes, we'll do that after the break. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Okay, we've talked about prison and crime numbers. Now let's talk about the police. Our number for this is 147,430, the number of police officers in England and Wales right now. That's a little bit up from 2010, uh, where it was nearly 144,000. But in that time, we've had a sort of dip and, and then back up. So at its lowest level in 2017, there were nearly 122,000 police officers. So we have seen a drop in the number of police officers and a rise. And it's also the case that when you add in all of those kind of police support officers, community officers, we're still slightly below 2010 levels. So there's definitely been a bit of a drop in the number of police at the same time, as you said, John, as the number of crimes recorded by the police has gone up very, very substantially. And which most people in this area think is quite significant, the complexity of crimes that police have had to deal with has also gone up. Sexual offences is a good example. Um, Dealing with um, rape, for example, is often more complicated and takes longer than sort of clear violent incidents. Fraud is a very difficult one and yeah. one in which the police um, are not necessarily brilliantly equipped right now to deal with. So we have more complex crimes. 
So the police have to be smarter. They're no longer going, excuse me, mate, I've just seen you coming out of that house. What, what's that carrying in your bag? Um, it's now, you know, uh, you know, much more serious, you know, trying to investigate marital relationships, perhaps in a, in a rape case, or trying to prove a trail of fraud that may be a very long trail indeed and not simply be confined to the United Kingdom. And this feeds into the point you were making earlier about the business crimes and crimes on properties rising. And one of the things we do know is that the majority of the public, nearly 70%, think that the police has basically given up on trying to solve crimes like shoplifting and think that antisocial behaviour is a massive problem. So the very highly visible, potentially somewhat simpler crimes, particularly in town centres, affecting shops, people think that there's almost no point in reporting these to the police because that's not what the police are spending their time on. The whole question of... Uh, whether or not we should trust the police and whether or not trust and confidence in the police has been affected at all um, has been the subject of quite considerable uh, controversy recently, not particularly in the case of uh, the Metropolitan Police, the murder of Sarah Everard by Wayne Cousins, the multiple rapes against David Carrick. Um, so all of this has raised questions about how much do we trust the police? Has our confidence in the police uh, uh, gone down or not? And certainly... It's certainly true that if you on a more than one time series, if you compare the level of trust in police or confidence in the police, or indeed um, how well you think the police are doing, um, the numbers now are less favourable to the police uh, than they were. So, for example, if you take um, whether the, the confidence and the ability of the police to deal with crime, uh, uh, data from YouGov. Um, we had uh, only had 40, about 42% of people back in 2019 saying they had no little uh, confidence in the ability of their local police to deal with a crime. Uh, that's now running at 55%. Um, more broadly, back in 2019, 75% of people, again, according to YouGov, thought the police were doing a good job. Here, most recently, it's now down to about 47%. Uh, the a crime survey which also asks about confidence in the local police gave most recent reading 69% having confidence whereas it was around 76% in 2013 2014 so there's certainly both in terms of trust confidence operation perceived operational effectiveness the police certainly seem to have taken a hit in recent years that said, you know, as you and I often say, well, but let's just take the longer view. The longest view I think we've got in terms of trust in the police, and it is about the trust in the police to tell the truth, which again is something you might think was affected by some of the incidents that have, that have been affecting the, the, the Metropolitan Police. Um, and here, Ipsos have a time series going all the way back to 1983. And they find that found back in 1983 that 61% of people trusted the police to tell the truth at that time. And the number was pretty much at that level for a very long time. It then actually went up in the late 2010s. So that by 2019, before the pandemic, actually 76% of people said they had trust in police. So therefore, according to Ipsos at least, the fact that it's now back down to 63% simply takes us back to where we were. So I think certainly it's pretty clear that the police have taken a hit. It's also clear, by the way, that they're in more trouble with some groups than other. Confidence in London 
on all these surveys is somewhat lower than it is across the UK as a whole. Amongst the ethnic minority population is somewhat lower than elsewhere. Though again, you usually got more people even amongst ethnic minorities saying they trust the police than, than that they don't. And despite the concerns of expressed by many women in the light of particularly behavior active failures of the Metropolitan Police. It's not clear that women necessarily have markedly less uh, uh, trust uh, in, in the police. Uh, so the police have taken a hit, but again, perhaps there is sometimes a risk of exaggerating if we don't take the long view as to the extent to which this necessarily represents a marked uh, change in attitudes towards the police as opposed to certainly taking a bit of a hit in the wake of some pretty unfavourable media publicity. I mean, publicity that many people would say you know, it has quite rightly been there. And John, how, how does this map to trust in other institutions? Because uh, you read a lot about trust in politicians, trust in the media, you know, a lot of things are going down. Is the police relatively holding up? Well, the, 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 the police are kind of in the middle in terms of professions inside the UK, though I think you've also been looking at it internationally, so I'll come back to you on that. Um, uh, you know, of course, you've just given me the wonderful opportunity to point out that, you know, amongst the most trusted professions in the UK are, of course, university professors. <laughs> and, and I you've been to, on the TV so much, John. You are single-handedly. <laughs> and, and I hate to tell you, Rachel, although doubtless you will deny that this is your profession, that pollsters don't do quite so well, and they certainly do, don't do so well. Um, as the police. Well, well um, my, so, other, so, my other potential profession is politics, which does a lot worse than pollsters. So well, I'll there take you go, pollsters. There you go. <laughs> John, I think we should talk about punishments. What's our final number for this episode? Well, our final number is what people say on the British Social Attitude Survey when asked whether or not the death penalty is sometimes an appropriate sentence. Uh, in our most recent survey, 41% of people agreed with that proposition, but slightly more, 45% disagreed. And that compares with the position back in 1986, when 19% uh, of uh, people disagreed with the proposition, but 75% of people agreed. So attitudes towards the death penalty, at least, have changed pretty dramatically. That doesn't necessarily mean to say that we think we should not regard murder seriously. Indeed, um, according to a recent survey done by Cervantes for the Crime and Justice Committee of the House of Commons, you know, 42% of us think that life should mean life for murder. But this is one area at least where attitudes have shifted. And interestingly, not much difference by age on this. Um, it's something where all age groups seem to have changed their attitudes. So as a society, we seem to have become generally less likely to think that this is an appropriate sentence. Now, all of that said... We're not soft mean, on crime, are we, though? We're not necessarily <laughs> soft on crime. No, though we're, we're a wee bit softer than we are. So there's another question that we've asked on British social artists, which is people should be getting stiffer sentences, OK? Uh, back in 1986, 73% agreed with that. It is now down to 60%, but it's also still as high as 60%. But again, what's true here is now is that there is an age difference. So amongst people who are under 35, uh, only 51% think that people should be getting stiffer sentences, whereas amongst the 55 pluses, uh, it's 64%. And here also, you do begin to get a bit of a difference between conservative supporters 
77% expressing this view, and Labour supporters, which is 52%. So there is some sense whereby we've become, I guess the, the correct way of thinking about it is a little bit less illiberal in terms of our attitudes towards punishment. But that said, that said, there's a very, very particular change with respect to the death penalty. So, you know, MPs decided what back now in the 1960s that this was no longer something that was acceptable. Even now, our society, we're split on the subject, but more, there is now a considerable body of opinion in our society that has just decided that equally now, this also is not, it's, it's, it's not acceptable. They will wait and see whether that continues to be the case. And of course, you know, the death penalty has now been outlawed here for um, around 60, 70 years. But I guess in terms of the kind of big force, we were talking at the beginning about people being in prison for longer, having longer sentences. Yeah. That's broadly where the public is. They would like people to be in prison for longer and to have longer sentences. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, again, you know, it's interesting how the, the, certainly the, the answers you get to surveys when you simply ask people fairly general questions. So again, going back to that Cervantes survey for the Justice Committee, 71% um, of people said that they thought that, you know, in general, prison sentences were too lenient and only 4% thought they were too tough. Certainly the immediate reaction of the public to uh, sentencing in general is that it's not, it's not tough enough. Although of course, those surveys that then start to give people scenarios and circumstances will then sometimes find that actually people weren't actually faced with the task that many judges faced with, well, how to judge this particular crime given this particular circumstance, they're not necessarily uh, that much um, out of line. Um, but it's what's certainly also true. I mean, attitudes do vary according to the crime, okay? So for example, Coming almost back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, you know, should we necessarily be sending people to prison? Well, when it comes to to non-violent crimes, the majority view by far is that basically it should be a non-custodial sentence. 51% of people support that. Only 17% oppose the idea of non-custodial uh, uh, sentences for non-violent crimes. So we do draw that distinction and you're saying therefore the fact that we're sending people to prison for violent crimes is essentially therefore where the public where public are at but again we you know we do also uh differ so i've already said um you know a lot of us think certainly life should be mine for for, for for life we've talked about our attitudes towards sexual crimes we're pretty intolerant there now the median answer given giving giving people a whole range of possible sentences the median uh, choice of the electorate is that rape is 25 years in prison. Burglary, in contrast, it's six years. In a sense, I guess the message is the punishment should fit the crime, although uh, and very often that does still mean that people should be spending a long time in prison, as indeed many people, as we said at the beginning, are, such that we've got rather more prisoners than we have prison spaces at the moment. And as well as the punishment for the crime, does, does people's views change depending on uh, their social background and place? Because I promised, I, I promised I'd give my t favourite Tony Blair anecdote. Um, and it's early on in his autobiography when he's an MP for Sedgefield. 
uh, and he's asked in a meeting in Sedgefield what his view is on the death penalty. And he says uh, that he was always very pleased when that question came up because it was one of the few genuinely left-wing opinions he held. And he gave his Islington answer, which was, um, I I wouldn't support the death penalty because if I'm not prepared to hang that person myself, I shouldn't ask the state to do it for me. And there were two middle-aged women in the front row, and I'm not going to try and do the accents. And one said, well, I'd hang them. And the other said, well, I'd draw and quarter them too. And he suddenly realised that County Durham and Islington, or at least in the Labour Party, were non-identical. Now, this was the 1980s. So this was when, of course, 75% of people supported the death penalty. Would that still be true now? Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, I I said attitudes towards the death penalty are not related to age, but they are related to education. Graduates are less likely to feel that the death penalty is appropriate than non-graduates. Equally, also in general, graduates are less likely to uh, favour tougher punishment. They are uh, less likely to say that we should be giving people stiffer sentences. Islington, like most of London, is full of graduates and Sedgefield has rather fewer graduates. So you will get that that, that difference uh, of outlook. But I guess we should conclude with, you know, what, what's likely to happen as a result of this prison overcrowding? What are politicians likely to do? And I think the the main point from my point of view is as long as the electorate broadly think that serious crimes deserve very, very serious sentences, then we're going to have to have lots of prison places and we're probably going to need more than we do now. And and that doesn't mean that sentencing shouldn't change, but um, this is not yep. an area where politicians are acting against the public will, far from it. That's, that, you know, that is true. Though, of, again, of course, um, doubtless also what politicians will be concerned about is to see whether or not prisons can be made more effective mechanisms for correcting behaviour. Because, of course, one of the uh, problems that we face is that the very high levels of people who have been to prison once ending up in prison again because of subsequent re-offending. So turning prisons from a place simply of punishment to a place of rehabilitation is another... But, of course, that's also something that potentially requires money. And it's a hugely interesting and contested topic on how you do this, which I would love to come back to next time that prisons turn up in the news, John. Um, But I think that's probably it for this episode of Trendy. Remember, if you've got questions or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss or take a look at, then you can email trendy at tortoisemedia.com. New episodes are published every Thursday, so follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Next week... We're going to be looking at immigration and we're going to be joined by our first mystery guest on the podcast. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Tortoise.